Hello, hello. Welcome to the finale episode of Let's Make Work Human for season two. It's just me and May today, and we're discussing and reflecting on some of our favorite moments from season two and what questions it's raised for us. We talk about where to start if a leader realizes that they need a culture shift but don't know where to begin. We talk about the pills that were hard for us to swallow, things that some of our experts said that still are percolating in our minds. We talk about a couple of conversations that are definitely sticking with us. We talk about if leadership is actually sometimes designed to be the most lonely job and how we can counter that. Our guests on season two of Let's Make Work Human really brought it. Their wisdom, their humility, their curiosity, and their courage. And we are so, so grateful for their contributions. And thank you, listener, for being with us this season. And we sure hope that you join us in season three coming soon. All right, let's jump in. This is a fun one. Imagine if work was actually good for people, not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrick, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Hello. 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 Oh, this is my favorite podcast episode. You and I get to talk all by ourselves again. It's just me and Mo. And this is the finale of season two. This is it. We've made it to the end of this round. If this is just a call to listeners, if you really feel like you would like season three to be a certain way or to talk about a certain thing in season three, hit us up in our email. We would love to hear from you. Also, just talk to us over email anyways. We would love that also. So here's what we're going to do, Mo. I've synthesized some of the questions that I think I have after having season two, and I would like to ask you some questions and then see where we go. That sounds good. And just for our listeners, if they haven't listened to the whole of season two, this season was pretty different for us because we had a guest approach, which we did not have the first season when it was just mostly you and I. And so we had a lot of guests. How many guests did we have? 18 guests, something like that. Amazing guests. And so I love that you've listened and I have done the same around what surfaces from us from all of these somewhat divergent and different guests that we've had this season. So yeah, hit me up. What you got? What's your first question? Okay. First question is, it comes from hearing from so many different places and people and different kinds of leaders, different kinds of consultants, different kinds of people, which actually cleared nothing up for me in terms of leadership. <laughs> like, spoiler, if you haven't listened to the rest of the season. So this is where this question is, that if I was a leader right now and I had listened to all of season two, and I identified that I have a couple of these problems that everybody is talking about and I felt nervous about them. Where do I start? Because it feels like sometimes you have to start everywhere and that's just not, that's not how budgets work. And that doesn't seem like that's how life works. So Mo, if you could just let someone know where to start if they're really feeling, oh my gosh, I have so many of these problems. Where do you start? In terms of trying to be an effective leader in an organization or trying to run an effective culture or both? 
Yeah, I think if you, good question. I think if you've identified that culture is actually the root of the problem, which maybe that's an excellent name we should take right off the bat, is how you would know that it's culture and that it's not just something else. And then if it is culture, then where to begin? Whew, it hit me up with a hard one right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really fascinating what you're observing as you go back and listen to all the experts that we had about leadership, culture, team health, all the things that have to do with the workplace. Because this podcast is about how we make work more life-centered, more human-centered, coming from the bias that I know we hold that momentum that when people thrive at work, everything is better. So for me, I think that we always have to start with where we are. I guess that's what comes up for me is that you're right. Like it can be really hard to know how to, where to start, especially when it comes to culture, because culture is so ephemeral. It's very, it can feel very big. It can feel like it's surrounding us, but it's also something tangible that we can potentially impact with certain levers, but we don't always know what those are. Uh, So I think that the step one, I'm curious what you think about this may, but when we think about how we assess what to do next in our organizations, particularly when it comes to issues connected to people and culture, we always first have to get our bearings on where are we? What is hap- what is our current state? And then the more we understand that, the easier then it can be to diagnose what about that current state is not working or is broken or is causing us pain or suffering or costing us. And then from there, we can begin to focus on that place to start. Because I think a lot of times where we start is not where we're going to end up. So it doesn't necessarily really matter where we start. We just have to start. Mm-hmm. And I think that starts with self-awareness. But what do you, with not self, not just self-awareness, but organizational awareness, like understanding where are we right now? Yeah, I love that answer because that's actually very difficult to figure out sometimes. <laughs> what do you think, what do you think about the person who figures out like, oh no, it's very bad. We are in a very bad place and feels a lot of grief in that like initial moment and then knows they have to do something but also realizes that the problem is very large and the movement that they can make is very small. Like, how do you stay believing that even the small progress will actually be okay and that you're not just wasting money, wasting energy, wasting hope? I don't know. I don't know that I have an easy answer for that other than doing something puts you in a different place. It gives you a different perspective. And as we were talking, May, I was thinking about a friend of mine was recently diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not a great diagnosis, right? That's a lifelong diagnosis. Diabetes is a bad illness. It, mm-hmm. it causes lots of pain and suffering. And so this person who's a little bit younger than me is feeling overwhelmed by this and has to make a lot of changes to their lifestyle, including taking, getting an insulin pump and stuff like that. And what I think is fascinating is that the only thing that I've seen be working for her as she's been dealing with this is to do the first thing. Mm. You know, so like in their case, the first thing was to get a pump and to begin to try to get the insulin regulated. There's other things like losing some weight and getting back into an exercise routine and changing their diet and all of those kinds of things that we know impact diabetes. But they can't really get to any of that until they get their insulin stabilized because they're too sick. They feel really ill a lot of the time. So I think for me, there's a lot that we can learn from that sort of diagnostic process when we look at organizations to say, where do we start? So for example, let's say we have problems in our organization related to toxicity. Like maybe we have a high performing sales manager who actually has proven to be not very good for people. Like we're getting employee complaints. Maybe there's even been 
legal action or just like discontent, the team is underperforming. And we feel like that department is out of sync with our overall culture. Maybe we're a small company, we're 80 employees, but we have this leader who's high performing, selling the heck out of our product, but they're lo- we can't keep salespeople in that area. So we there's a lot of things we could do, but until we deal with that, we're not going to get traction. So job one becomes for me, what's the hard conversation I need to have with that sales leader that's either going to help them become higher performing as a people leader, or is going to remove them from our organization, emancipate them to something else so that we have at least someone who's operating in a way that's consistent with our values. And I think so oftentimes in business and organizational settings, we fear taking that kind of move because we don't understand fully what the consequences will be. But I think if we can understand, if we can say to ourselves, yeah, whatever the consequences are, this is job one. And then we look at job two. Yeah. It's like a trusting that you're doing enough by doing the first thing. And that just because you can't solve it today doesn't mean you're doing not, it doesn't mean you're too late. Right. That's what like can get scary about a lot of looking things in the face is that you might actually be too late. I think that's what we worry about sometimes about a lot of things, finances, weight, whatever it may be, family relationships, like friendships, like deep personal things like that. And I think that probably transitions into work stuff too. I don't want to get that bad feedback because it might be too late, right? Or I don't want to actually see how bad this culture is because it might be too late. It's a good point. And here's something else that comes to mind for me. And we've touched on this in a couple of our interviews this season. Like I'm thinking of our conversation with Craig Foreman. It came up when we were talking with Alima, yes, about organizations that she's consulting to and culture in particular with those two experts. I think that one of the ways we can always remember that we're not too late is that systems are very resilient. Human systems, natural systems, and organizational systems are actually very resilient. And we can't solve systemic or system-wide problems by breaking everything down to its component parts. We have to actually hold in our mind and in our heart the capacity of the whole system. So I recently sprained my ankle, right? And which is a bummer, not a bad sprain, but it's bad enough. And I can just slap a brace on that, take some Advil, cool. But the reality is that this little sprained ankle has affected my whole life it's harder to drive and I can't walk the dog. And so my husband has to do it. And so the whole, this one little human has a whole system of interrelationships that this one little injury is actually impacting in a way that I didn't really think about when I got my x-ray back from the doctor. So I think that, it, and there's a lot of hope to be said about that. Cause it's like, yeah, Mo, your ankle will heal. And in the meantime, you just have to deal with the consequences on the system, knowing that the system will resiliently find its way instead of just feeling terrible. Oh, I'll never be useful. And I, or this thing is devastating to me. And I think the same is true in the workplace where we say, yeah, we have some problems, but the system is naturally resilient. Where are we going to start to try to get some momentum to get that flywheel moving in the direction that we want? And then when that happens, we can take the next brave step. Yeah. It's like the, there's this thing on the internet going around that's nothing matters and nothing matters. It's you are just a piece of the system and you are just a piece of the system. Like you can make a difference. And also if it's really scary and bad, like little bits actually make very large difference. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. I think that's awesome. I, as we're, as we're discussing like, okay, how to find out exactly where I am. I'm mindful of the fact that is what we do for a business. So I just want to say that oftentimes just a plug for, you know, us, it takes somebody from the outside to come in 
and have a conversation about where you are if you are having a hard time finding the way. But Mo, tell us about when sometimes you deliver that information and they don't want to hear that. (laughs) What happens when you get a very good consultant? The consultant tells you based off of a lot of experience of being in a lot of systems, what they think the issue is, and you don't actually want that diagnosis. Yeah. I think that does happen. And it's happened to me, right? I've hired consultants in our business that have come in and looked at what we're doing and said, actually, this is what you should do. And sometimes we've done what they thought we should do against our better judgment. Mm -hmm. And it's cost us we've maybe failed at something. I would say particularly in our space, in some of the marketing ideas that we've gotten from other experts we've hired, where we're not a marketing company. So, you know, we're a leadership and culture development company. So we don't know about marketing. So we've taken some of that advice and those recommendations at full face value. Where I think the learning has come from us in those examples is to say, yeah, that was good feedback. That consultant is an expert but they don't actually know us, not deeply the way that we know us. And so what I would say to that person who's like resisting the feedback from the consultant is, okay, good for you. You get to do you and your organization gets to do you. But you have paid somebody who has an outsider perspective and probably has some expertise. So the least I think you can do is to take a really good hard look at it yeah, and to test it, you know, yeah. to idea test it in some, with some of the people that matter in your organization to say, is this feeling for us? And I know for us as a team, our small team, that's been extremely valuable. And I really appreciate it. Our clients who say, when I make, for example, a diagnosis and a recommendation, who can say that one definitely feels right. We feel ready for that. This idea, actually, no, not yet or not now. Mm -hmm. And I think a good consultant can take that and be like, okay, you, and so I'm going to, I'm willing to go with that. And of course, if they're not open to any of the suggestions, then we're not a good fit probably over time. But I think that it's okay if you want to resist. But I guess the other piece of that for me, May, in terms of what you're saying is make sure you're telling yourself the truth because the outsider perspective is valuable. That's why you paid to get that expertise. And so you owe it to yourself to at least listen deeply. What are they seeing that I may not be seeing about my organization? Yeah. And have you heard it before in some other way? Yes. Is that an echo, a deep echo of something? It reminds me a lot of Scott Allen's advice about listening to a board, which I can imagine a lot of people listening do actually work for boards, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit board and how to take advice and do you have to take it and how to do that. So I really appreciated that because sometimes I think leaders like Scott Allen can it can look like they either don't take anyone's advice, they just know what to do, or they take everybody's advice and it was all right. Like the best mentors in the world, so everything's cool for them. And it was nice to hear from Scott that it's now nah, that's not really how it works. Like we get advice and we pay the consequences for whatever we decide to choose. Yes. So you should think deeply about what you are going to choose, regardless of what the recommendation is. But yeah, take the recommendation seriously. Take it seriously, look at it, be willing. Is there something there that we just haven't been seeing or that we're denying that's valuable? And I think that's what what outsiders can really help us with in any of the systems that we're leading. Totally. That is a good segue actually to the next question, which is that somebody recently in the leading people program of this cohort, and, and it's been swimming around in my brain this whole season, but do you think that leadership, the way that it is right now, is designed to be the loneliest job? I would say historically, perhaps. I think the outdated models of leadership that we inherited largely post-industrial revolution has been built upon 
a notion of leaders as problem solvers and as rugged individualists who need to stand alone in order sure. to bravely do the thing. So I think that idea of heroic leadership is very lonely. Hey, hey, we need your help. We are currently curating our incredible guest list for season three. And we're curious about who you want to hear from. Do you have someone or know someone that you really think we should bring on the show, Let's Make Work Human, for season three? We'd love to know why. And you could email us their info at info at momentum.com. That's info at M-O-E-M-E-N-T-U-M dot com. We really care about who you want us to talk to, and we can't wait to hear your recommendations. All right, let's get back to the show. I don't think that's working for the current world of work, and I don't think it's going to help leaders go forward, which doesn't mean that leaders never feel alone. Because ultimately, if you're the head of entity, and for example, you are ultimately in some ways alone, getting back to what Scott said, it's very powerful. If you have a board you trust, or if you have a coach you trust, or you have external advisors that you trust, but you can't share sometimes the challenges you're dealing with as head of entity with your employees the way that you might wish. And so I think that can feel real. And I hear a lot of senior leaders, even not only CEO level or president level, but even leaders of teams who feel like, gosh, I'm holding this information or feeling the burden of this. And I actually don't want to share it my people because it's not appropriate for them to have to carry that. And that's okay. But I do think it's important that leaders of today do find the places that they can get support because the reality is none of us can do it alone. We're in interconnected systems. We're in ecosystems of partnership that we really can benefit from when we are willing to nurture the support that helps us feel less lonely. And we're in a loneliness epidemic as a nation and as a world right now anyway. So if you add the loneliness that could be inherent in historical models of leadership, I think, yes, leaders often feel alone. One of the reasons we love peer cohort learning for the Leading People program, and one of the things that we love about working with intact leadership teams is to be able to strengthen the interdependence that leaders can let themselves feel of, Mm -hmm. oh, actually, I do have a group of people, even outside my organization, that can support me, that can hear my hardest challenges and give me some challenge and some feedback back so that I don't feel that I'm alone. Because I don't think feeling alone is a useful feeling when it comes to hard things. Do you? Yeah. No, I was just thinking that if you... That peer coaching, the way that we're doing it with the Leading People program is so interesting because they bring a challenge every day to be coached on by the group. And right after they say the challenge, I'll ask, what do you need from us? Because it isn't very useful to just like word vomit and then have everybody react to that. I bet that feels pretty good, but that doesn't get you any good coaching. (laughs) It, It Yeah, so it's not the best. And often... Everybody will take a deep breath and they'll thank everybody for listening. And then they will dig for like the thing that they actually need coaching on, which is actually just a challenge to help with. It's not. So I think if you don't have the room to do that and you don't have the place to do that, then you either disassociate from how big and scary those things feel coming at you in hyperspeed all the time, plus the things you have going on at home. Mm-hmm. And then you numb because yeah. it's a lot. It's so yeah. many things. Like when I hear about the things we're nervous about and we're worried about and the things that are coming up, 
they're not inconsequential issues. I don't know. And it's not the only thing that's happened that year to that person or that week. So it seems a little bit like a release pressure gauge to just say, wow, this is a really big thing happening to me. And everybody goes, yeah, that sounds big and serious. And then you get to business of, okay, and what are we going to do about it? How can we help? So I think while it is, I do, I love what you're saying that like not being lonely doesn't mean that you won't feel alone. There is inherently a piece where you have to be alone to make a decision there, but you don't have to be lonely. Right. For community. You can look for help and you can get it. Absolutely. And also they're just hearing that somebody else has faced something similar can be so powerful. And I'm curious, I have a question back to you because one of the things we've touched on a little bit in this season is, and we certainly see it in our client basis, is the challenges that people are facing with remote work. And I've heard from everyone on our team, certainly that at times they feel quite alone. And I know that I've said that to you as the CEO of the team. And I'm curious about for you, mate, when you are working in your role, as director of community here, and you feel alone, does that help you feel like you're more effective and productive? Or does it erode your feelings of effectiveness and productivity to feel like you're actually out there separate from the rest of us, like carrying the water alone? This is a great question. I can pontificate as we know. So I think that my loneliness, when I feel alone, it tells me that I need to be more acutely communicative about what I need Mm. and that the fluffiness of how I usually like to communicate and be with people isn't actually working that I need to go into a meeting and ask you for what I actually need or I need to ask for a meeting or it's more of a signal to me than anything to go ask and find the thing which goes against my nature in certain ways so I think it's just helped me I don't feel lonely as a, rem- a remote worker. I have felt alone for sure, but I do not feel lonely, Yeah, which might be a testament to our team, might be a testament to just how our personalities are. I don't know, but it's I feel more connected because I have to take an active role in finding it in yeah. order to do it. It's not just part of work for me. Yes. Yeah, I love that. And we've actually, as a team, and I've seen this in the systems that we work with, that are not seeing like negative impacts from remote work, they're actually doing similar to what we're doing. They're making effort and energy. We have more meetings now and we have more rigor with asking for help and more systems that communicate projects than we've ever had before. And I think some of that is because we've always been virtual, but we've had to get better at maintaining those touch points and not having anyone feel really disconnected or like they can't say that they need help. The thing you're naming that I think is really powerful and I want to underline it is that I think employees, I think lower level, let's say not necessarily people leaders or not people in the C-suite can often feel as though they are part of a machine, even in a small system, part of a machine where they're powerless, they're demise and they're helpless. And I think the words you just said are so powerful, which is actually, I, that's an indicator to me that I need to do something to get what I need. And I think if every employee in the land could find a way to that kind of courage to say, oh, actually, I have a part in my own satisfaction and my own thriving here. I think that starts to change the feeling of victimization as a worker, as an employee, because it's, oh, I've got a role in this. I can ask for what I need. I'm not alone. I'm interdependent. I feel like you got to (laughs) be. That's like the way of remote work and work in general, I think. There's a whole another podcast about the lazy girl worker that I want to chat with you about, which is like the direct antihero to the girl boss. Anyways, yeah. we'll have that at a different time. 
do that next season. Okay. So my next question is the hard pill that was difficult to swallow for you this season. Let's hear about it. There were some times this season with our experts where I definitely was like super curious and activated and like, what? Like, really? I remember talking to Sasha Mm. about her experience when she was first working in an organization where she was the only Black woman. Mm -hmm. And the things that were said to her by colleagues, basically comparing her to a hooker, like confusing her with the hooker that was out there property. I noticed in that moment, my own incredulity at times, as, for example, a white woman, Mm. of thinking, whoa. Like that is hard for me to swallow because I find myself thinking that happens. That shit actually happens still today to a leader like Sasha. And yet I believe her a hundred percent, but I also found myself feeling that bitterness of this just feels sad and hard that people are experiencing still this kind of, of racism that, or sexism or whatever the isms are. So that was one thing that, that I, that was one example for me of something where I was like, gosh, really, we're still perpetuating this. And I, and yet I know I do, I believe that we are, but I don't like that. It makes it challenging. Yeah. Yeah. There's some others, but what about you? It was intense to talk to Alicia about being prepared for natural and not natural disasters. Yeah. Um, that was intense because yeah. <laughs> we don't have a plan for that and we probably should. It was like going to the doctor and then being like, so have you ever heard of bleep blap bleep doop? Right. And you're like, no, I've never heard of that. <laughs> They're like, you should because you have it. You know what I mean? I was like, what? What do you mean? So that was pretty intense. That was a tough pill to swallow because I remember asking a question. Yeah, cool, cool. But everybody's remote. So we have to have five preparedness ideas and she essentially was like yeah and I was like whoa okay this just got like really ramped I also Eleanor the very first episode with Eleanor where Eleanor used the word earn that you have to earn your joy and it was our first episode I was like a little rusty and I just came straight out the gate you got to earn your joy and I was like wait a minute hold up wait a minute we got to earn joy and then it turned into a much deeper braver conversation than I think it could have been because I had a reaction to earning joy mm. and now I've turned the corner that I agree with her in the way that she's was talking about it. Mm. Yeah. That it, I don't think there's a trap in there somewhere about people saying that we have to earn joy, but the way that Eleanor is using it is really beautiful and, and very empathetic and also really true. I think it's, we don't always tell the truth like that to women leaders the way that Eleanor was telling it in that episode. Yeah, no, I, I that was a powerful moment for me too, because I saw that as largely a generational moment as well, because you had such a strong reaction. I think it's one of the places where older people like myself and or Eleanor, maybe see younger people like yourself and people like you that are like, there's a judgment there around working too much, working not enough, having entitlement, not having entitlement. And so I really appreciated that conversation because it, it did, you, you two found your way right around what you each meant by that. But it was definitely one of those places where you could see the reactivity. And the, those moments are always hard to swallow when we notice it. I, I was... I noticed as well, I agree with you about Alicia's pod, and I've been thinking about that discussion about emergency preparedness as we deal with what's happened in Maui. Here in Oregon right now, we have a lot of fires, and I've just been thinking about all of the people affected. Also, I've been thinking a lot about the workers and what kinds of plans are having to activate and really just centering on emergencies are also somebody's job. Totally. To handle. 
And how do we make those workplaces fit for human life? I've just been thinking a lot about that. How does somebody be a firefighter and not actually be at risk? They are at risk. And so it's, yeah. it's given me a really deep appreciation for the impacts of those kinds of things on us. Yeah. Was it a tough pill to swallow to talk to Sai? Have a conversation with Sai Wakeman, who in some ways was the antihero to a lot of things we say. Totally. And I don't think we unbelieve the things we we say, actually. Right. And I think if Cy Wakeman was here, we would hang out with her for many hours. Like, I think yeah. we like Cy. Yeah. But there was a couple hard pills in there. There were. And for me, yeah, that conversation was rocking in terms of it was provocative for me. She's yeah. really smart. She's got a ton of experience. And yes, especially as I've become more familiar with the work, I was like, oh, this is antithetical to what we're saying. And I also at first blushed when I first heard about size work, I actually felt that it was very assimilated work to corporate culture in particular around some of the things we've talked about. And, but in talking to her, what I felt in that dialogue was like, no, actually we are on the same page. Her reality-based leadership to me, what it simulated to me is the, the, the alignment for me is around, we too advocate for transparency. So if somebody's not working out in their job, like we don't pretend that they are. Yeah. Like we speak it directly. And I think she's not saying without compassion, but she puts so much of that responsibility onto the employee to be real. And so I found myself feeling at the end of that dialogue, like actually really closely aligned, yeah. but I can see that at first blush, the work looks really quite different. And yeah. I actually, I like that because it, it required a bit more expansiveness for me. Yeah. I think we end up in these bubbles sometimes thinking that everybody's saying the same thing that we are. And I came out of that conversation being like, good thing we are saying the same thing. Because if you're saying something that is powerful, provocative, and is the truth, then everybody should be saying it. And that's like, I came out of there being like, we're saying the same thing, but in different ways. And let's all keep saying that because- yes. We still have work for a reason because not everybody believes it. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that was hard for me to swallow a little bit was the conversation we had with Brandon where we were trying to talk about HR and the future of HR. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck with that conversation with how we have an entire professional field that's actually really entrenched in ways of thinking that are not helping organizations to be life-centered. Yeah, that was a sad one. It was tough and it wasn't about Brandon being sad, but it was more like, oh, wow, we here it is. Like we're bumping up against this. And I think that happens in a lot of contexts around the workplace where we, we get frustrated about work, but then we say, yeah, but this is, this has to, it has to be this way. Yeah. I hate that. Maybe that's a millennial in me, but I really hate that. Yeah. And I like that you hate that because it causes us to say, does it though? Does it have to be that way? Which is, I think, the part for Brandon, based on what he said, he was like, this conversation's radical. (laughs) I know. And you and I were like, is it really? We didn't necessarily feel that. But I I felt like he was, when he's not an HR practitioner, he works in an HR organization. But I I think he appreciated that breath of fresh air, which kind of goes back to Zai's conversation. It's like when we can think about things that are in a different way, we can read life into something that we've thought was just the way the world existed. And I felt that in that conversation with Brandon was just like, good point. You know, yeah. what would it be like if this field was different? So I know yeah. there's a real, there's a real hot tip in there where you throw down about how an org structure could change for HR. Just if right. anybody's looking for it. No one has picked up yet, but <laughs> I <laughs> I think it's great. Someday it's going to, and there will be proof on the internet. Okay, to wrap us up, we got one more question. I got one more question for you. Okay. And 
I think sometimes there is this misunderstanding that this is an assumption I'm making, so you can check me on this, but that there are these people out there that are called young professionals, apparently. I'm not sure if I'm still a young professional. I don't know when you stop being young professional. I have no idea. Anyway, there's the beginning of their career, and then there's middle managers, and then there's upper management, and then there's a C- there's all this jargon words. And I think there is something out there that says that all of those levels are so wildly different that until you learn the first one, you cannot move to the next one. And you cannot move to the next one unless you know the certain thing. And they're just so different. And they all are like apart from each other, right? You have to have training and all the things. But and that some of that is true. Absolutely. I don't want the beginning astronaut to fly the thing, but whatever. But what is it in all of those positions in a system that is the same? Is it the values? Is it the mindset? What is it that you know to be true about every everybody in a system? I love that question about what what is common to all of us in the world of work that is that supersedes our level and our experience. Because I think you're right, those things, we have four generations in the workplace right now. We have multiple levels. I think what unites us, and this is something that I come back to so often as a touchstone for myself, and I know it's something that we talk about a lot with our clients, is that most of us come to work every day wanting to do a good job. Like work matters to our identity. It matters to our sense of meaning in the world. And we wake up wanting to do good work. I think that's what unites us, whether we're for the first day on the job or we have been there for 30 years, that is a common thing. And I know a lot of people don't believe me on that. They're like, no, that's not true. No, people just sometimes take the job for money and they really don't care. I'm like, that may be that they're taking the job just for money. But by the same token, that actually may be the reason that they are finding to get up and go every day. So I think that unites us. I think we want to do a good job and because it matters to us. What a good closing. Bravo. Yeah. What do you see it differently? Do you think there's something different? No. No, I think that's the thing. I think that sometimes if we undercut the newest by thinking that's not how they are, yes, we think they're slackers. And if we yes. think that the people that are on their way out aren't doing that, then we aren't utilizing their goodness either. I think we misunderstand each other so often because we don't give each other that benefit of the doubt of that like our roles are different, but we care about the same thing. I love that. It, it unites us and it aligns us. And it also it just gives us that feeling of generosity, which I think we need to thrive at work, which is often missing. And on that note, as we wrap for today, and as we wrap for this season two, I want to pitch to our listeners as well. We really want to know who else you want to hear from. We do plan to do some more guests in season three, and we have some really good ones queued up, people that we're continuing to find really interesting to talk about this crazy world of work that we deal with. But if you have an idea of somebody you think we should talk to out there and you're listening, email us, find us on LinkedIn and send us a direct message. You should have this person on your podcast, even if it's someone provocative, because we like that. And, we can um, handle it. Yeah. We can handle it. We can totally, we proved we're ourselves. Here. We yeah, we're good. Thank you, Mal. Thanks, Yes, you too. Bye. Bye. It has been a total pleasure and so much fun this season. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate all the ratings and reviews and for the ways that you've shared this podcast with your community. We are on a mission to restore humanity to work one workplace at a time. And the more people who listen to it, the better. We will be back with season three very soon.